Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Jennifer Palmer is here. She covers education for Oklahoma Watch, and she's been digging into a damning audit looking at how Oklahoma spends federal grant money, including millions in COVID relief money. Jennifer, what's the focus of this particular audit? So this is an annual audit that our state conducts every year about um, looking at how the state spent federal funds. And this particular audit looked at fiscal year 2021. Um, So it covers the second half of 2020 and the first half of 2021. And what are the top line findings on that? So the the main thing is that there were um, over 29 million that auditors found were questionable. Um, Now, their definition of questionable, basically what they're looking for is whether the the funds were spent in a way that aligned with the program's purpose. So all of these were spent through a certain grant or program, and at least 29 million auditors found did not meet that purpose. Now, two of the most problematic programs were education-related and were funded with the governor's relief money. Uh, Can you start with what the auditors found wrong with the digital wallet program? Sure. So this is a program that we're pretty familiar with. We've done a lot of reporting on this program and some of the um, issues with it. This was... um, This program gave grants to low-income families during COVID, $1,500 each, to buy school supplies. Um, And we had found uh, last year that more than half a million was spent on things that were not school supplies, right? Not education-related. A federal audit um, expanded on that a little bit, raised the total to about $650,000 that was um, not education-related, well, this audit raised it even more, and it's now up to $1.7 million in funds that were spent in a way that were not on educational items, that were not um, under the program. Uh, and actually, the auditors found a little bit more than that, that they questioned $1.8 million. And, you know, for those who maybe haven't been following the story, when you uh, say money was spent on things that were not education related, can you maybe elaborate on what kinds of items should have been purchased, what the money was intended for, and then what kinds of things some of that money actually got spent on? Sure. So this was um, during a time when a lot of students were learning from home. So the purpose of the program was to allow these parents to buy things like laptop computers, um, maybe curriculum, books, um, things like that to help their kids um, stay on an educational um, path while their schools were um, struggling to have in-person classes. Um, But the um, program allowed um, basically any purchases at certain vendors like Office Depot or something like that. And so we found that parents bought, um, you know, home appliances, um, furniture, ring doorbells, lots of TVs, uh, video game consoles, things like that. 
All right. Now, what about the stay in school uh, program? That's uh, private school vouchers, right? That's right. This was a program that gave um, families in need um, tuition grants, basically. Um, It was intended to help families keep their kid in the same private school that they'd attended the year before um, if they were having some financial challenges due to COVID, say they lost their job or, or they were a small business owner and business, you know, was dried up and they were they were struggling. Now, uh, what other programs had issues besides those two? Um, so there were a couple of things. Uh, the auditors found that there were 12, little over 12 million in CARES Act purchases that were questioned. Um, This was mostly money that was spent on things like PPE, um, you know, at the time buying lots of masks and and hand sanitizer and things like that, um, and health services. Uh, The main problem with those purchases was that they were not documented or or they were prepaid. The program grants required um, the state to um, have the the item on hand, right, not to to pay for them and get the item later. the other program was the emergency rental assistance, and that was $1.6 million that's questioned due to excessive uh, management fees. Um, there's an Oklahoma City foundation that managed that program, and that's a big problem because that money could have been um, given to renters. I mean, it could have been distributed, but instead was collected um, over, uh, over and above what they were supposed to collect, according to the audit. So uh, what kind of fallout uh, are we thinking we might see from from this audit? I mean, two major things. One is this, you know, $29 million or uh, some portion of that could have to be repaid. Um, you know, federal funds, the feds are pretty strict about this. The has to be spent in uh, the way that it's supposed to be spent. And if it's not, they can claw it back. Um, and of course, this was free money to the state, you know, to to give to um, citizens in need and students. Um, so that could be a, a big problem if the state has to come up with this money to pay it back. Um, and then the other fallout, um, especially on the the gear programs, the governor's education programs, is there's an investigative audit going on. Um, the AG had started um, in April, requested this. And the state auditor is getting underway with that. And that is looking for whether any of the problems with the gear gear programs were criminal. And, uh, you know, really, when we're talking about how those programs were managed and now the attorney general asking for that kind of audit, who's he looking at here? Who stands to end up in hot water? I mean, you know, Governor Stitt is the one that signed for these funds. It's his signature on the form saying, I accept these funds and I will spend them in accordance with the program rules. But of course, he did delegate at the time we were getting a lot of COVID money. Um, and both of the gear programs that are um, problematic, according to this audit, were handed off to special interest groups. Um and the digital wallet program especially uh, was handed off to Every Kid Counts Oklahoma. And at the time, uh, now State Superintendent Ryan Walters was the executive director of that program. So um, I'm sure he is someone that the AG is looking at. 
All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's coverage of the audit and all her uh, other investigative work based around education in Oklahoma at our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Whitney Bryan's with us today. She covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story questions police response to mental health emergencies through one Oklahoma City Police Department call that ended in a man's death. Whitney, uh, tell us about Ernest Antwine. Who was he? Well, he was an Oklahoma City man. He was uh, 42 years old when he died, uh, father of two, and he had a pretty troubled past. He had been arrested by Oklahoma City police uh, at least 15 times. He served several years in prison for a lot of uh, drug crimes as well as uh, rape, sodomy, and a, a few other uh, pretty heavy felonies. So he was no stranger to the criminal justice system. And a lot of his activities like that revolved around drug use as well as his mental illness. He had schizophrenia. And so what happened to Ernest? Well, Ernest was uh, high. He was experiencing symptoms of schizophrenia one uh, afternoon in August back in 2021. And he was at his mother's house in Oklahoma City on the front porch, banging on her door, trying to get in. He had a stick and was kind of beating on the door. So his mother called 911. She was concerned for her own safety as well as his. And police arrived. We don't know a lot about what happened after they arrived, other than Sergeant Robert Burton took Ernest in his patrol car out to North Sooner Road and dropped him off there. And a few minutes later, Ernest stepped in front of a pickup truck and died. So uh, have you been to where Ernest was was dropped off, the sort of no man's land? What's out there on that part of Sooner Road? Yes, I have been out there. And uh, it's basically a stretch of Sooner Road between Northeast 10th and Northeast 23rd Street. There's a railroad track there. There's a, a huge field on the west side of the road, uh, very overgrown, probably four or five feet tall, uh, you know, of grass there. There are no shoulders on the side of the road and there are abandoned buildings, you know, with boarded up windows and an old pipeline uh, factory there. On one corner, there's a, a gas station and liquor store, but that's basically the only, you know, functioning building around. And so why would uh, Sergeant Burton take him out there instead of uh, to jail or to a mental health facility? Why there? Well, that's kind of the million-dollar question here, right? Um, so I asked a former Oklahoma City PD commander. He actually led the crisis intervention team. That's the mental health unit there. Uh, I asked if there was any reason that, you know, he might be dropped off in a place like this rather than being, you know, taken to jail or to the hospital. And he told me he couldn't think of a reason. The only thing that came to mind was, you know, on occasion in a volatile situation, a police officer might offer to take um, someone like Ernest to a different location. Uh, you know, he was at his mom's house and she didn't want him there anymore. So they may take him somewhere that he requested to go. However, uh, this officer, Jeff Pierce, he told me that 
you know, it's up to the officer to determine if that's a safe choice. So he, in his words, Jeff Pierce says he would never have taken Ernest out to a location like this. Had he requested a hospital, a friend's house, somewhere that might have been safe, sure, he would have dropped him off. And uh, why the, why this particular spot? Any ideas? Uh, uh, still in Oklahoma City? So it is technically in Oklahoma City, but it is not in Oklahoma City police jurisdiction. So it is just on the other side of, you know, where Oklahoma City police would respond. It's actually in the county sheriff department's response area uh, closer to Midwest City. So uh, we asked the officer, we tried to reach the officer as well as the Oklahoma City Police Department, and nobody was able to give us a reason. Nobody would say why he was taken to this location. Uh, Were you able to learn anything at all from Oklahoma City Police uh, when you asked him about the case? Uh, No, they basically said they would not respond to any questions or talk at all about the case because there is a pending lawsuit from Ernest's mother. Um, so because of that, you know, they they didn't want to respond to anything. I did request any records they had of this response back in 2021, and they said there is no incident report of any kind related to this day um, and, and them responding to Ernest's mother's home. Uh, I asked if that was typical, if if you know, there was not a reason they had to create a report for something like that. And what I was told was that they do not have to create an incident report if they're not arresting him. And he was not under arrest, according to the Oklahoma City Police spokeswoman, which is why there's no report. I also asked if there was body camera footage and they're looking into that. They did not know if that existed. All right. You've been covering police response to mental health emergencies for at least a few years now. Uh, How does this case uh, compare to other ones you've encountered? Well, I have to say there are are definitely some similarities here to other cases that I've written about and reported on. Uh, For instance, uh, you know, Ernest's kind of troubled history with, with drugs and with the criminal justice system. That's pretty typical of a lot of the folks I've written about who have died um, due to interactions with police. Uh, What's a little bit different here, though, is, you know, a lot of the the folks I've written about in the past died at the hands of police. They were either, you know, fatally shot by a police officer or um, beaten by jailers or something to that effect while they were in crisis. In this case, Ernest was taken while he was in crisis by a police officer and sort of, you know, stranded on the side of the road and then died a few minutes later. So that's sort of where this story um, veers off track just a little bit. Now, uh, Sergeant Burton isn't uh, responding to questions. The department isn't responding to questions and, and hasn't produced any of the records that you've requested. So how were you able to learn about what happened uh, to Antoine? Well, I mentioned a minute ago, there is a a lawsuit now that was filed in May by Ernest's mother, Shirley Antwine. She is suing the officer, Sergeant Robert Burton, and the driver of the truck that killed Antwine, uh, Ernest Antwine, her son. His name is Robert Dunn. So that lawsuit provides some details about what happened to him that day. And then based on the information in that lawsuit, I, I made several public records requests and I 
found reports from the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Department that corroborated what was in the lawsuit. So the Sheriff's Department responded to the accident when Ernest was hit by the truck. And one of the deputies who responded to that spoke to Sergeant Burton at the Oklahoma City Police Department and asked how how Ernest had ended up there. In that Sheriff's Department report, he says that the police officer told him he dropped Ernest off on the side of the road. All right. So uh, what else is in the uh, lawsuit? Anything else revealed in that? Well, the one thing that is in the lawsuit that has been pretty hard to corroborate at this point and that nobody will talk to us about is uh, Ernest's mother claims that the someone at the police department told her that Officer Burton was on his way to a job interview the day that he dropped Ernest off. Now, that's not mentioned in a motion to dismiss that case that was filed by Burton's attorney, and the police department also would not speak to that. So that's really the only detail in the lawsuit that is not being corroborated by other documentation. And is uh, Antoine's mother, is her allegation essentially that um, Sergeant Burton just uh, didn't want to deal with the paperwork, didn't want to take him to the jail or the hospital, and so got him just outside Oklahoma City PD's uh, jurisdiction and uh, dropped him off on the side of the road and made him somebody else's problem? That's pretty much it. I mean, I think it's also important to note a detail I haven't mentioned yet is that when the police arrived at her home on that day on August 4th in 2021, her son Ernest had a warrant out for his arrest for a previous drug charge. So, you know, I I spoke to that former Oklahoma City PD commander and he said, basically, that's an easy out for these officers. You know, you have this, this violent and Um, You know, uh, this violent man who's experiencing, you know, symptoms of um, drug use as well as schizophrenia, he's unsafe, his mother feels unsafe. The easy solution there, according to this commander, was to arrest him on this warrant that was out for him um, and take him to the hospital and then to jail. So the fact that that wasn't used and the fact that he was not taken to the hospital or arrested and taken to jail. I think that really speaks to uh, how his mother was feeling about what the officer did with her son. And that's certainly um, in the lawsuit as well. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. Uh, You can read uh, Whitney's story about Ernest Antwine uh, and how he met his end, as well as all her other investigative work related to vulnerable populations in Oklahoma on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. In this segment, we're with Yasmin Sidi. She's uh, one of our interns this summer. And uh, Yasmin, tell us a little bit of background. Where are you going to school? What are you studying? How'd you end up at Oklahoma Watch? Sure. Um, So I'm currently a student at the University of Missouri, Columbia. I'm going into my junior year studying journalism um, with an emphasis in reporting and writing. So at my daily paper there, I focus on K-12 education and youth reporting. Um, I came to Oklahoma Watch because of my interest in investigative reporting. Um, I, through my interview with Mike Sherman, our editor, I really found that the purpose of Oklahoma Watch and its mission really related to what I wanted to do as a journalist. 
um, kind of in the service aspect and uncovering some of the um, hidden truths in our community. And uh, what drew you to journalism in the first place, right? When you were in high school, sitting around picking out college majors, why that? So I've always loved to write. Um, ever since elementary school, I wanted to become an author. And then in high school, I I was influenced by a few of the adults in my life. And I kind of figured that becoming an author might not be the most profitable route. Um, and neither is journalism. But I took a journalism class and thought that maybe this would be a good way to combine my interest in writing with just talking to people in the community and my like my love of service. So uh, it, in the first couple of years uh, at Mizzou, what what are the things that surprised you about journalism? That's a good question. Um, so the way it works at Mizzou is that for your first almost two years, you're taking a lot of classes that are just how to use a camera, how to do different multimedia work and writing. And then when you get into your upper years, you go into the newsroom and you're forced to write for one of the publications or work for the TV station. Um, so this past semester, I started working for our local newspaper. And that was a little bit surprising because I never worked on such a tight deadline um, doing daily stories and really um, going out and writing in like two hours by the time I came back. So I think learning to operate in a fast-paced newsroom like that and also navigating editors' personalities was something that was really valuable to me. And uh, generally, when students start out, they get a little little taste of everything, right, covering different topics. So um, it, you've been doing education, but what else did you dip your toe into? And did you make any discoveries about areas of journalism that you liked or didn't like along the way? Yeah. So before I did education reporting, I took a class where we each had a beat. It was kind of an introduction to what it would be like in the newsroom. Um, and I focused on a rural town in um, Missouri. And I thought that just local reporting was something that caught my interest because I had, I learned that if you're in a place for a long enough time and you're going to meetings, you're going to develop trust with the people who are around you and become a source um, that they're able to speak to and give tips to. So I think local reporting and rural reporting kind of stood out to me. That's great. So uh, what then, you know, uh, especially in rural towns, uh, those publications and those places often don't have a lot of investigative work on their plates. Uh, what attracted you to investigative journalism and, and Oklahoma Watch? I've always been interested in investigative journalism, kind of because of the long, long form aspect of it. Um, as I said before, with The Missourian, I did a lot of tight, like quick turn stories. And while I really like that, and I think writing on a deadline and putting out news is very important on a daily basis, I think there's a lot of value in working on a story for a long time and getting to really know the sources you're talking to. Um, I think it adds a lot of depth to it. 
Um, and I also reading just long investigative stories has always been interesting to me. So I wanted that to be kind of a bigger goal to set for myself. Um, Oklahoma Watch specifically, I think it went back to the mission. I think Oklahoma Watch has a very specific goal of holding entities accountable and showing how policies affect people. Um, so I was really drawn to that and reading some of the stories, I could see that a lot of work and effort goes into putting those out. And in the few months that you're here, what do you hope to accomplish? So I think a big goal of mine is to have a project come through to the end and really um, see some of my work come to fruition. Um, a few of my goals have already been kind of not accomplished, but already getting there. Um, I've really enjoyed the mentorship I've gotten through my internship so far. And I think I've already learned how to become a better investigative journalist, um, just in being more inquisitive and asking the right questions and also just finding all these different pieces to a story that I might not have thought about before. All right, Yasmin. Well, thanks so much for being here today. And you can read all of Yasmin's work at our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.